Hey everybody, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. I am the co-host of the show, Tyler Buckingham. And I am Erica Sears, special guest co-host. Well, Erica, here we are in part two of our two-parter that we produced on the Maritime Media Tour in Door County. We've got a great interview coming up with Dennis Hickey and Todd Stuth. They are with the Bailey's Harbor Fish Company. We had the pleasure of going out and going fishing with them. It was one of the absolute highlights of the trip for me. But before we jump into that, let's get a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Today we have two wonderful guests with us. We have Dennis Hickey, the, a career commercial fisherman up here on the Great Lakes, the former owner of Bailey's Harbor Fish Company, and now a consultant to his son-in-law, Todd Stuth, who is now the owner of the fish company. So thank you both so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to have this conversation, Erica, because this morning we had the, the distinct pleasure of going out with Todd uh, fishing and experiencing a little bit of what it's like to harvest uh, whitefish from Green Bay uh, up here on the Great Lakes. It's truly the first time in my life I've ever been able to experience anything like that. And it was really cool, interesting method. And also this is a really interesting fishery that uh, feeds uh, people here on the Door Peninsula, which I think is really cool. It's a local, sustainable fishery. We, we hear about this all the time on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ladies and gentlemen. So let's learn a little bit about it. Uh, I would like to start with Dennis. Uh, your family has a long history of fishing on the Door Peninsula. Could you kind of take us through that history beginning, beginning at the beginning? Well, I think uh, my grandfather came here from Norway, and uh, he was about 18 years old. I'm not sure how he came, but I think it was just uh, from one boat to another. I know he sailed uh, a lot of times uh, out on the ocean, and uh, he probably listened to different people and different stories about a place called Door County uh, at, uh, up in Wisconsin. And uh, it's unbelievable. If you do go to Norway, uh, the area that they came from is almost identical to Door really? County. Uh, it has stone fences and and uh, small fisheries and everything, just like he came to at that time. And he came into Bailey's Harbor, and uh, I think he worked for other fishermen and other loggers and farmers, and gradually uh, he got together with uh, other uh, fishermen, I think three, four other fishermen, and they uh, called themselves the Mud Bay Fish Company. They, uh, uh, one guy would own the, the Ponette, and then the other guy would own the boat, and 
different things. They worked like that together. And, and uh, uh, one of them was a cooper, and he made barrels uh, over there. Uh, his name was Nelson over on uh, uh, Booth Point. And uh, they uh, uh, worked like that for a while. And I know my grandfather then, uh, after he was here a while, he bought his own boat. And uh, he fished uh, lake trout with hooks out front uh, here. Uh, he uh, would uh, come and go uh, that way, and gradually they wound up buying a uh, three-masted sailing schooner. And I know that that was uh, in company with uh, brands here who had the general store in town, and uh, they would uh, haul like the barrels of fish and, and fish and uh, cedar post and uh, I think they call them telegraph poles at the time, yeah. to uh, Milwaukee. And uh, I don't think they went as far as Chicago much, but they hauled to Milwaukee. And then in turn, they would bring back uh, goods for the uh, general store here in town. My uh, grandfather had uh, then gradually, uh, as he earned money and saved, he bought uh, uh, the farm, which was on the corner right where the Bailey's Harbor Town Hall is now. Wow. And uh, he had his fish dock right across the street inside of the big schooner dock uh, down there. And they uh, kept their schooner. Uh, it was a combination of them. Uh, uh, in order to uh, run a schooner, uh, they had a master, in other words, the captain. And generally, the master owned one quarter of the uh, vessel. And this is how I figured out how, how they went about things, because I was always wondering why they were selling back and forth to each other, and I think they decided who was going to run the boat this year, and, and then he was the master, and so he bought a, a quarter of share of the boat. And huh. so uh, I've got the, the documents and everything for all of that, and it's uh, some of that I've taken out of the Door County Advocate files uh, that I've seen. But then uh, my dad and his brother uh, uh, gradually took over on the fishing. They had a small... Uh, boat uh, about 28 to 30 feet long and they fished hooks uh, out front here on uh, spawning reefs out in front of Bailey's Harbor. Uh, it was real good uh, lake trout fishing in, in those days. And gradually as the fishing went on the uh, 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 lamprey got into Lake Michigan and uh, the fishing uh, really went downhill fast and uh, so uh, my dad sold uh, the fish rig that he had but he kept the land and uh, uh, the farms and that, and, which I'm glad of today because we still have uh, some of that land. And uh, uh, then my brother and I uh, got uh, interested in fishing when we got out of the Navy and came back to Bailey's Harbor. At that time, we weren't really interested in getting into fishing heavy duty. We didn't know what we wanted to do, but we went to work for uh, uh, a fisherman named Cliff Winninger, and he was a big fisherman up here at that time, but he was fishing alewife uh, for, uh, uh, used it for pet food and all fish meal and also the oil. And uh, we were getting a cent and a quarter a pound for the alewife. Wow. <laughs> we were fishing them with uh, uh, ponets. And uh, uh, we would try and get two truckloads a day out of here, and we'd haul them over to Pensaki uh, to the fish uh, meal plant there. And uh, uh, gradually that uh, summer we worked and we got kind of hooked on fishing and, 
And we spotted in the nets when we were lifting for alewife that there were small whitefish about six inches long. And when we showed him my dad, he says, you know, I think the whitefish are going to come back. And so uh, the next year, my brother and I bought uh, our first gillnet boat. And uh, we uh, got a commercial license. And uh, from then on, we just gradually built up uh, from there. In the first couple of years, when we made our first catches out here in the fall, probably 150 pounds, 200 pounds of fish. And uh, nobody had seen uh, much of a catch of whitefish before that. And uh, uh, so it was the beginning of, of uh, a long trend of 15, 20 years of, of good whitefish fishing. And I have a question. So we're thinking about the beginning, and I'm always interested. Um, I'm 29, so whenever someone's starting up a business, starting something new, I'm like, go out there, good luck. I have no idea how you're going to do it. So when you and your brother decided, hey, we're going to buy, we're going to start a commercial fishing business, how hard was it to navigate? Was it hard to navigate back then? Different permits, quotas, working with the government, finding a market <clears throat> to sell to, or who helped you through that? Oh, no. At, at that time, uh, commercial fishing licenses were $16, and uh, anybody could probably have one. But we weren't exactly starting out green because uh, we lived right here on the lake all our lives and been around uh, the fishery all our lives. And our dad was a commercial fisherman and our grandfather. So we heard the stories and how they went about things and knew where they fished and how they had fished and, and everything. So... Uh, we uh, uh, just took it from there. How has the regulatory environment shifted uh, over the years? Uh, you know, back when you started, I imagine it was a totally different world uh, as far as, uh, you know, the local Department of Natural Resources here in Wisconsin, uh, as far as kind of the fishery biology that was taking place in both Green Bay and Lake Michigan. Uh, I imagine that the, the the regulations were much fewer than they are today. Uh, how, what was required to get started? Did you could you just go out and fish and start selling, or did you have to? Were there laws on the books? Uh, there were regulations uh, over the years. It's pretty surprising. If uh, I've got uh, some uh, copies, uh, a woman gave me of the Advocate files, all the way from the beginning of uh, the Door County Advocate. And it's surprising, uh, they called it the Fishery Commission at that time. Uh, and uh, they, they regulated mesh sizes and, and uh, uh, the types of gear that you could use and, and different things uh, from the very beginning. Because you will, there's articles in there that I've read too that they were always concerned that uh, even in those days that uh, fishermen would be concerned from one fisherman to another that they wouldn't over harvest stocks and, and that sort of stuff. So there was very basic laws though, uh, uh, that there were at that time. And they uh, uh, then gradually uh, moved into every time there was a dispute about something, it would lead to another law, you know, and gradually. We started out, it was a little pamphlet of regulations. Now it's uh, a whole book, uh, just about NR25 is, of regulation and laws that uh, we have to get along with. A lot of it is... Uh, when the sport fishery got really interested in the lake, then uh, there was other, a lot more people, you know, interested in, you know, uh, using the lake and, and uh, working on the lake. So 
we came up with a lot more laws. And how many um, commercial fishermen were there back then when you started up, when it cost maybe 16 bucks to, to buy a license? Well, the, the commercial fishing was looked at a little bit different then, too, because there were a lot of people that, when uh, in the wintertime, say if they were a farmer or, or uh, somebody that did something else, they would uh, just get a box of nets or something and go out and, and set, and they caught the fish that they needed to eat. And that uh, it wasn't looked at as really a, a, a big volume type business, you know. And uh, so uh, there were probably, uh, I know that our license uh, numbers, I don't know if it has anything to do with anything, but uh, we have uh, number 237, so 237 uh, licenses maybe were out at one time, maybe more than that. I'm not sure. You know. Well, I, I'd be curious to hear how uh, the tourism economy here in Door County has changed in your lifetime? Uh, is it noticeably bigger today than it was when you first started uh, commercial fishing? And have you noticed the change on the county, in the county? <clears throat> oh, there's no question that there's a big change, especially since COVID. These last two, three years, oh, uh, yeah. uh, the county will never be the same, unfortunately. Uh, uh, it's it's good. It's it's nice and everything, but uh, uh, I I get a little concerned that uh, you know where there were forty acre farms now they're they're divided up and there's two houses going up and uh, there's a, a a lot more traffic and uh, it's it's just not the same place, but it's still a beautiful place. Door County is still no doubt uh, the place to go. Well, it, it is an amazing, uh, truly amazing place. One of the things I love about this business. And Todd, I want to get to you. I mean, this is a sustainable food source for the county and beyond. Uh, and I'm interested, Todd, in your uh, interest in getting involved in this business. Uh, obviously, you're growing up here in this beautiful place. Uh, you see the economic uh, possibilities around you, but you're, you're drawn to the fishery. What, what drew you in? Well, I fished throughout all of college and put myself through college commercial fishing. Um, the schedule was very adaptive to making sure I could finish school. And so I basically came back and forth. And after I graduated, I went and worked in an office and I took every ounce of vacation to continue commercial fishing and every weekend commercial fished. And so after a while of sitting in an office, I decided that I didn't really want to be in an office. And I figured we'd come back here and we'll just figure it out. <laughs> And so that's kind of where I took the lead on commercial fishing. And now we're, what, 20, you think you said 28 years you've been at it? I think since 95. Since 1995. That's a, that's a pretty long career yourself. <laughs> uh, what's changed in your mind over that period of time with the fishery? Well, I would say we've definitely um, lost a lot of commercial fishermen. Um, I think when I started, I think we were at like just over 215 licenses. And I think right now, currently today, there's 47 Wow. So, and I believe of the 47 licenses, there's really only four or five groups of fishermen that own probably three quarters of those licenses. Like I think out of our dock here, I think we have about six or seven of those licenses right out of our dock. So what happened there? Why, why did that happen, do you think? Well, they put on a whole, there was a whole host of regulation that went through that went to be limited entry so that basically they could control the commercial fishing aspect of things and the quota and the lake user conflict and a bunch of different aspects of the fishery and I think as that happened I mean the small guys basically didn't have the options anymore that they did they couldn't just come and go 
and then they put minimum levels of investment on the fishery. So you basically had to have X dollars invested in boats, gear, and equipment to be able to continue on. And that was one of the big limiting factors. Dennis, you, you I thought, put it in a really, I've never heard it quite phrased this way, but you said they wanted businesses. Uh, that they they didn't want, uh, you know, just any mom and pop operation out there pulling fish. They wanted operations that are fishery operations that they can, A, regulate and, you know, make sure that they're following the rules that they're making, but also uh, that this was a way to decrease uh, the, the variance, the chaos of the system, which I find to be super fascinating. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, the Great Lakes... Uh, Erica, you know, on, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, this comes up all the time, How just how crazy the Great Lakes are from a fishery perspective because of the St. Lawrence Seaway. It's like, they, it's like a big aquarium experiment in some respects. I mean, so many new uh, species have been introduced. Uh, the way that they have interfaced with the fisheries have been kind of, it was kind of a mystery how things would go. But you all have kind of experienced this over your lifetimes. Uh, can you, uh, when I asked outside if you were concerned about climate change, Dennis, you said no, you were concerned about invasive species. That's just how important it is to you. Where do we stand on that these days? I mean, uh, do you think the biologists and the regulators are doing a better job these days of managing the fishery vis-a-vis -vis, um, invasives and just fish stocks generally? Well, I think that uh, they have gotten a hold of the invasive uh, species one of the biggest things uh, the fishery commission has uh, uh the great lakes fishery commission has uh, stopped the uh, 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 invasion of uh, them coming in with seawater and they put regulations on the, the vessels that are coming from the ocean in here so they have to exchange their uh, ballast water before they come in and i think that uh, the fishery commission has done a real good job on lamprey control They've worked real hard on uh, uh, barriers and also uh, the lampricide that they have. And they, uh, every year they work at uh, trying to get enough money. Uh, you know, uh, it's a combination. The Great Lakes Fishery Commission is uh, uh, also be between uh, commission between Canada and the U.S. And Canada uh, chips in. They're supposed to chip in their half too, but sometimes they're, they don't always pay their share. And yet they still harvest uh, their share of the fish out of the Great Lakes. And, uh, uh, but the lamprey control is, is uh, a big, big part of it. And then uh, I would say the ballast water is part of it. And then you've got the, the smaller uh, invasive stuff that, you know, comes and goes uh, that uh, they always uh, try and come up with a way to deal with it one way or the other, but uh, sometimes there isn't really anything you can do with a lot of the things that have come in. It's just like uh, zebra mussels. Yeah. That, you know. You all roll with it. That's what I've noticed is that through the years, you all have just rolled with it as these various things have come in. I mean, the lamprey issue uh, decimated, I understand, some fisheries in the Great oh, yeah. Lakes. And uh, here you guys are still fishing, still making it work, which I think is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think so too. And earlier today, so... We went out on, on the boat on Lars, I think is the name of the boat we went out Correct. on with Todd. And let me tell you, everybody, really quick. It's a beautiful, sunny morning. We're picking up. We were picked up in a minivan, dropped right into the Lars. We pull out. There's no tourist anywhere. Sun shining in our face. 
as Todd tells me wonderful stories. So if you are looking for a new deckhand, I'm ready. Um, you know how to get in touch with me. Commercial fishing is so pleasant. <laughs> no, but actually it was very cool. We looked out today on, on the weather we had. And I think, Todd, when we were out, you made a comment about how government and policies and advocacy looks different on the Canada side versus here. Like, we have a very similar body of water, the same body of water, but you kind of mentioned that maybe it looks a lot different on the Canada side and there's things that could benefit us down here if we did something similar. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think the Canadian side definitely does a better job of um, fostering community outreach around the commercial fishery. Huh. Um, there's a lot more commercial fishing docks, piers, um, access to the commercial fishery, and a lot better publicity. Um, about the, like you said before, a renewable resource right here in your backyard and being able to utilize it. And they put a lot more emphasis on that than the state side. And the state side sh tends to shift the focus to the sport and recreational fisheries, not realizing because there's so few of us left here that this is still a viable um, industry. Commercial fishing is. And I mean, we provide a clean label product to our local area and our region. And so who is, who is they? Is that the, is that local city councils? Is that tourism organizations, marketing? Who is making it seem so much more accessible in Canada? Who, who could help you with that down here? I think, to be honest with you, it's, it's the government. It's the crown. I think it's, they definitely put a greater emphasis on food supply and just clean label and being able to have that, you know, avenue to search out. and. Well, the other thing, I mean, I think you're right. There's no question about it. In America... Uh, commercial fisheries are oftentimes hidden behind a big, tall chain-link fence that you can't see behind. It's kind of a mystery. And one of the things I think is really cool about the operation that y'all are running today is that you invite uh, people like us out there to experience it. You invite uh, biologists and scientists. You, it seems like you have a real open-door policy, which I have to say I, I don't believe is usually the way it goes. Now, I realize that Fishermen are out really early in the morning. Most of us, it's, you know, it's a lifestyle, ladies and gentlemen. You don't just <laughs> go out and, you know, hang out with the, uh, you know, on a boat all, all day. You'd be in the way. But um, I, the exposure, I think, really matters. And can you walk us through, Todd, your philosophy in kind of opening the doors? Uh, maybe, Dennis, that was something you started. But, you know, what, th that's a cultural thing here at the Bailey's Harbor Fish Company. Education is everything, and I believe it all started with Dennis. I mean, he pretty much, he, we brought in all the local schools, all the young children in. We still do it to this day. We bring in all the daycare centers in the summer and walk them through the fish processing plant, see where their food's coming from. And I mean, we provide samples and do projects with them, and we've had multiple schools through. And we actually, with a lot of the other work that we do, the research work, we're engaged with a lot of different biologists. So we have biologists from across the country that come in and see our gear and how we do things and sample our, you know, fisheries here and get a great outlook on it. I mean, it's definitely a broader perspective that the average person doesn't get the opportunity to see. Education, again, I think is just everything. And I don't think we've talked about this yet, but you're not just here in the Great Lakes. You're in national parks doing research across the country, right? Like, there, what are some of the places um, that you're helping or working in right now? Um, we do work pretty much throughout the U.S. Um, throughout the lower 48. I mean, we've been contacted by Alaska as well to help them out. And we do a lot of consulting work, gear development, um, boat building, um, and fisheries research work. We supply the boat, the gear, and the guys, and they put the biologists on with us. We, we're in charge of catching them the fish. They're in charge of the science. 
I love that. I think earlier, Dennis, I think it was you that was saying, right, that you, you all, actually, you both have said this, that because you're the fisherman, you understand the seasonality, you look at the weather, you look at the wind direction, the temperature, you know the, the best times to go out. And so I think, Dennis, you were saying that the state actually has figured out that they should just send the biologists and the scientists out with you on your boats because you already know how to do all of it. Is that right? Well, uh, some states do. Uh, now, uh, we used to have a lot of uh, Wisconsin uh, biologists ride with us, you know. They still come after we come in and they'll uh, look at the fish, you know, and measure them and everything. Other states, uh, but they have their own boat and okay. uh, their own, they use their own biologists and their own crew now and, and try and get the uh, work done themselves. Where other states have found that it's just more cost effective and you, you get a lot more bang for your buck. If you just have the professional fishermen go out with the biologist and and uh, get their samples and and I've had uh, some of the professors like at Stevens Point and that tell me that uh, uh, your best uh, research will come from the biggest samples you know and if you're out there every day you can sample every day and you can get big samples you're going to have more accurate information you know so no doubt well. Uh... The way that our day is going to go, Erica, is we are going to leave uh, from this interview, and then we are going to end up at a kind of a, I think, a, a Door County... Classic. Classic. Exactly. <laughs> Whoa, did we reach those minds? I think we did. <laughs> a classic culinary experience. We are. We are going to go to a Door County fish boil, <laughs> and we are going to be uh, having, I believe, possibly some of the fish that we pulled up today. I, it's possible. Very possible. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to guarantee it. But it's possible. It's a possibility. I won't recognize if it's our fish exactly from this morning. Well, I, how could you forget those faces? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think what we're both wondering is, what is a fish boil? Yeah. Could you could you walk our audience through a fish boil, Dennis? Well, it's it's become a big tourist attraction up here in uh, Dora County. Like I said, I think when we were talking before out there, that it originally started with the lake trout. And uh, they they called them trout boils at that time, and uh, but then gradually after the uh, lamprey era and uh, lake trout population uh, uh, was pretty well wiped out, uh, they started boiling whitefish. And whitefish are a little harder to boil than than uh, trout because they're more delicate, and you got to be on your toes when you boil, or you'll you'll have them all uh, broken up uh, and. Uh, it doesn't turn out as well, but it tastes uh, just as good, if not better, than the, the lake trout. But uh, uh, yeah, there's uh, still a, a few places here in Dora County that do it. And what they do is, is the uh, you put your water and potatoes in the uh, kettles. Uh, they generally have uh, generally their Speed Queen or Maytag washing machine uh, baskets. <laughs> if you could, you used to be able to get the company to sell them to you without cutting the hole in the bottom, but now they, they won't sell them anymore. So uh, they just have big kettles now, most of the guys that are doing it. But uh, uh, then you boil your potatoes uh, for about 20 minutes, and then uh, you add uh, little uh, boiler onions, small onions, put them in there, and then uh, you let it boil for another 10 minutes, and, and then you can put in your, your whitefish. And you boil that for about 10 minutes, but in between that, you'll add half your salt at the end of the potatoes and uh, at the beginning of the uh, onions, and you half your salt at the end uh, when you put in the white fish. And uh, about a half an hour, uh, the fish should be done. You, 
sometimes you can just look in there if you boil enough you can you can tell when the skin just on the on the lateral line starts to come just a little bit loose better take them out that's they're done then all right i gotta ask now uh we're going to uh like a an established uh restaurant for this uh boil (laughs) but i know that dennis you've been on this peninsula a long time and uh this is like a cultural thing here could you tell me uh you did you do fish boils as like a young man was this something that you did here Oh, we we uh, boiled fish at home when I grew up. Yeah, sure. And we we have fish boils here for the crew at lunch. Oh, yeah. A lot of times too. How about that? Sometimes there'll be people come in and and they'll eat with us, you know, and that here and that because it's fast, fast and easy, you know, to to do. You know, it actually. Uh, uh, well, I know I've been to Norway and that I've uh, seen that they still do it over there too and that. So it came from the Scandinavian countries, maybe Germany. Too, Norwegian tradition. Love it. Go in there in July. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, so just one last question here is, um, so we're talking about, this is a perfect example, this tradition that's gone on for a long time. So what what is the next generation? What, what do you guys see? And I think we met one of the next generation, Tate, your younger brother, um, was with us on the boat today, gave us quite the tour. Love Tate. We, everyone loves Tate. Great guy. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, what, is that, what does that look like? How do we invest in the next generation within your family, outside of your family, to continue this legacy that, that you guys have carried on? Put your nose to the stone and keep working. And it, my brother and my, um, my sons will probably fish i would assume at least one of the three will fish <laughs> right and i mean my oldest son is probably I, I would trust him with any piece of gear we own here i mean he's 16 but i would send him out on the water with you guys just like i took you out today wow. i mean he's been on the boat since he could stand so i mean it's it i think it's just a generational thing and it's a family thing and i think if you grow up on the water it's pretty hard to leave the water is there anything uh, as we close that you'd want to tell our listeners about Door County and about uh, Bailey's Harbor Fish Company and what y'all do? I'd just like to tell them to stop in and we'll give them the tour any day, anybody. <laughs> Dennis, you have anything? Well, we'd just be happy to have anybody stop by, you know, and, and uh, uh, a meal of whitefish on your week's vacation or whatever is always a highlight to your vacation. Same as uh, smoke fish. We have smoked whitefish and smoked lake trout smoked salmon you can't go wrong with that i I, and and the other thing we haven't even discussed and we won't have time to but there's a whole caviar component to this too ladies and gentlemen which i'm i'm really into but uh dennis and todd thank you so much for your time uh and for taking us out today that was uh, an absolute pleasure